In July of 2003, 30-year-old Heather DeWild was a loving mother of two beautiful children, Jacob, five, and Hannah, three. Heather and her husband, Daniel, had been married for six years and had created a good life for themselves in Edgewater, Colorado. By all accounts, the DeWilds were living the American dream. That is, until their marriage slowly unraveled and Heather vanished on July 24, 2003. Join me now as we take a look into the sudden disappearance of Heather DeWild, a loving mother who was just starting to forge her own way in life. As we trace Heather's story, you'll learn of the long fight for justice for Heather and that sometimes evil people come in pairs. For the DeWilds, Edgewater, Colorado would have been an ideal place to raise a family. It is only a 15-minute drive from bustling Denver, but still offers plenty of parks, fresh mountain air, and 300 days of sunshine every year. Even more importantly, there was lots of extended family around the area for Heather, Daniel, and their children, Jacob and Hannah, to spend their time with. Daniel was a hard-working bus operations supervisor, and Heather was a doting mom who turned her home on Fenton Street into a social hub for family and friends. Heather was known to be a great cook and always made delicious meals for her family and their frequent guests. Heather's loved ones fondly recall her big sunny smile, sense of humor, and feisty spirit. Even though Heather was small in stature, most people thought she was a tough cookie, likely in part due to being the daughter of a Denver police officer. On the surface, Heather's husband Daniel was a devoted family man who always seemed to do his best to provide for his family. He was mechanically inclined and a hard worker who had no qualms about getting his hands dirty. Daniel, however, also liked to be in control of those around him and was not happy when things did not go his way. Over time, Heather slowly became fed up with Daniel's controlling nature, and then Daniel made an unwise investment that fell through. The family struggled to even pay the mortgage, so Heather was beside herself when Daniel insisted the family still go on their annual summer holiday. With money issues now in the mix, their usual frequent arguments worsened tremendously. While on the trip, Heather wasn't her usual happy self and seemed resentful to be crammed into an RV for such an extended period of time with her husband. Regardless, Heather still went on the trip, and when she got back she shocked everyone when she abruptly asked Daniel for a divorce and went to live with her parents taking Jacob and Hannah with her. Daniel found himself living alone in a big, empty house that he could no longer afford. So Daniel moved in his identical twin brother David and David's girlfriend Roseanne into the house. Not only would the company help address his isolation, 
but also having his brother contribute to the bills would assist with Daniel's increasingly dire financial situation. Daniel and David had always enjoyed the cliché inseparable bond thought to be had by all identical twins. When they were kids, the twin boys were always together. This closeness carried on throughout adulthood, with both brothers working as mechanics for the same transit authority. They even commonly finished each other's sentences. It was clear to everyone that knew them that Daniel and David lived their lives in sync. Those closest to the Dwild twins, however, realized that there was one significant difference between the two brothers. Daniel was much more controlling than David. Daniel was the ideas man, whereas David would help him make sure that things got done. The men shared a taste for pornography, but Daniel's love of power differentiated the type of magazines and videos Daniel purchased as compared to David. Daniel was almost exclusively drawn to bondage pornography, again demonstrating a predilection for total control. As his divorce from Heather approached, Daniel did everything he could to regain power in their relationship. But his control was slipping away, making him more and more desperate and more and more hostile. Custody, visitation, and child support were serious topics of contention in Heather and Daniel's divorce. Daniel was not getting his way, and he struggled to understand why Heather would just not move back home. Although resentment was growing, Daniel made one last-ditch attempt to win Heather back. On July 22, 2003, he went to her parents' house in Arvada, Colorado, with flowers and a card in hand. This reconciliation attempt was a complete failure. Heather made it readily clear she no longer wanted anything to do with him. She bluntly asked him to leave. Heather was insistent that Daniel was not going to get his way this time. She was done with being his wife and was moving on. She was happily planning a trip with her sister Jennifer, and she was also deciding on where her and the kids should make their permanent home. Around noon on July 24, 2003, just two days after the failed reconciliation and a week before their final divorce hearing, Heather and the kids stopped by what was once the happy DeWild family home. David had called Heather and asked her to come over to sign a mortgage check and pick up insurance cards for the children. Heather's dad, Dave Springer, knew all too well from his years as a Denver police officer how domestic situations could turn ugly. So he warned his daughter not to go. But Heather believed that as long as she had Jacob and Hannah with her, she would be safe. There was no way Daniel would start anything serious in front of his kids. But Heather never returned to her parents' home after her visit to Daniel's house. Heather's mom, Carol Springer, was immediately concerned and called Daniel to find out where her daughter and grandchildren were. 
Daniel explained that Heather had gone shopping and left her kids with him. She said she'd be back by 6 p.m., but never returned. Heather's parents were suspicious from the get-go. Not only had Heather not taken any money or her credit card with her, but also she never would have left her children with Daniel. Dave and Carol's heart sank. They were sure Daniel must have done something to their daughter. Carol rushed over to Daniel's house and picked up her grandchildren. By the next day, Heather's family had reported her missing. The police took swift action. Heather was a devoted mother with no history of unexplained absences. No one thought that she had willingly disappeared and Heather's dad was a veteran cop. Police take care of their own and were staunchly dedicated to finding Heather. Worry grew when the investigators realized the insurance cards were never picked up and the mortgage check had never been signed. Would Heather really have left without doing the two things that had brought her over to see Daniel in the first place? When Daniel was questioned, he told investigators that he and Heather did not argue that day. Heather just left in her vehicle to go shopping and had never come back. He said he had taken his children out for fast food and was grateful for the extra time he had with them before their grandparents came to pick them up. Daniel produced a receipt for the trip he made with his kids to the fast food restaurant. The receipt had a timestamp of 1.36 p.m. This provided Daniel with at least a partial alibi, as it would have been difficult, if not impossible, for him to have killed Heather, buried her somewhere, and gotten rid of her car between the time he was out with his kids and when Heather's parents came over to get Jacob and Hannah. However, when the police interviewed the DeWild children and asked what they had seen that day, their version of events did not match their father's. Jacob said that his daddy had been sneaking up on his mom's back. He also explained that he didn't know what they, Heather and Daniel, were fighting for. After hearing Jacob's disturbing account, the detective's next move was to question Heather's family and friends. Through multiple interviews, they discovered that Heather and Daniel's divorce was getting more and more acrimonious. Dan was furious when Heather won temporary custody of Jacob and Hannah, and he still had to pay child support. He now could barely afford his bills, even with his brother living with him and paying part of the mortgage. Police learned that approximately a week before Heather disappeared, Daniel's neighbor, Rick Kensington, saw Daniel at a garage sale during their conversation, Daniel appeared to be irate. He clenched his fists, gritted his teeth, and appeared enraged when discussing the couple's pending separation. Rick told the police he was upset about the divorce. Specifically, he said Heather was ruining his life and that she was getting everything. He mentioned he wasn't happy about paying child support. When police wanted to ask Daniel more questions about his relationship with Heather, Daniel refused. He told them he had retained a lawyer 
who had advised him to no longer speak to the police. Daniel also ordered his brother David not to talk to authorities. This did little but cast more suspicion on the twins. Now that the DeWilds were uncooperative, the detectives had to wait to get a warrant to search the house. The authorities figured that Daniel, David, and David's girlfriend, Roseanne, all knew what happened to Heather, and they believed whatever had happened to Heather had taken place in the house. The police hoped to find some forensic evidence that could lead them to the missing mother. However, when they carefully searched the DeWild house, they found no signs of foul play. When detectives learned that Daniel's twin, David, had taken his brown Chevrolet Suburban for repairs at a shop 15 miles away from his house, their suspicions mounted. Why would a professional mechanic do that? They knew it was imperative that they search David's vehicle for any sign of Heather. On July 30th, 2003, a bloodhound decomposition search was done on David's Suburban. The trained police dog indicated on a decomposing scent in the vehicle, but no other sign of Heather. The Suburban looked as though it had been recently thoroughly cleaned. Police informed David of the positive results on July 31st, and one day later, David shocked everyone when he and Roseanne got married. This was very strange timing, given that his sister-in-law was still missing. Roseanne told people that her and David had decided to get married just in case something happens, so I couldn't testify against him. Spouses cannot be compelled to testify against each other, so David and Roseanne's marriage, that at first seemed so strange, suddenly made a lot more sense. This also increased suspicions that they were involved in Heather's disappearance. On August 4, 2003, there seemed to be a big break in the case when the police located Heather's white Nissan Sentra in a parking lot of the nearby Newgate apartment complex five miles from the DeWild home. When her car was searched, it became clear Heather was likely not the person who had left her car in its final location. The windows were down, the keys were left in the glove box, and the car had been wiped clean of all fingerprints, even Heather's. Bloodhound scent lineups were conducted, and the results suggested that Daniel was the last person who drove Heather's vehicle. On September 4, 2003, a month after Heather's vehicle was found, her badly decomposed body was found in a shallow grave. Curtis Johnson was moving dirt on a canyon road when he unearthed Heather's remains along westbound U.S. Highway 6 at mile marker 262.5 in Golden, Colorado. Heather was clad in the exact same clothing she had on when she vanished on July 24th. 
Rope was tied loosely around her neck and wrists, binding them together, and her face was covered by a silver duct tape mask made of several pieces of vertical and horizontal duct tape. Heather's body was wrapped in two trash bags secured by two separate sections of silver duct tape. Forensic testing later revealed that the trash bags matched the general class characteristics of a garbage bag seized from Daniel's home. An autopsy by the Jefferson County Coroner's Office on September 7th determined that there were no signs of sexual assault, and it did not appear as though Heather had been redressed. She had suffered skull fractures and extensive fracturing of the facial bones, but it was thought that she was smothered or choked to death. Although the decomposition of Heather's body made the exact cause of death impossible to determine, the autopsy report confidently characterized her death as a homicide. Investigators went back over 1,500 pages of reports and retested all the forensic evidence with no luck. After double-checking everything, they realized they had no real physical evidence linking Daniel, David, and Roseanne to Heather's murder. They didn't have any DNA, but even if they did, it likely would have been of little evidentiary value. As Daniel and David are identical twins, it was possible they had the same DNA. So even if they had found blood evidence from one of the Dwild brothers at Heather's burial site or on her body, it couldn't be used to pinpoint which DeWild was guilty of the crime. Heather's parents and sisters grew increasingly frustrated when years passed and her killer had not been brought to justice. But the investigators did not think they had enough evidence to charge the twin brothers Daniel and David with Heather's murder and ensure a win in court. The community as a whole believed that the DeWild brothers were responsible for Heather's murder and they just might get away with it. In 2005, Heather's parents contacted the then-new District Attorney, Scott Story, and asked that he try to get some movement on the case. District Attorney Story committed to resolving the case and getting Heather's loved ones at least some sense of closure. Still, years passed and nothing much changed. But then, in 2009, a long six years after Heather was murdered, cold case detective Russ Boatwright was assigned to the case full-time and formed a team to tackle the case. DA Story said, that really was the turning point. Heather's case file grew to 30,000 pages, filling more than 15 boxes, and the cold case team carefully constructed an airtight circumstantial case against the three suspects, one piece of evidence at a time. The new team also discovered more clues. They connected a sex tape that Daniel and Heather had recorded during their marriage with the crime. On the DVD, Daniel is seen binding Heather in a way that was eerily similar to how her body was found. 
This reinforced Daniel's desire for power over Heather and pointed to his fixation with bondage and ropes. They also discovered that Daniel had created a dating profile on an online dating site during the time that Heather was missing. Most people would consider this on its own cruel and heartless behavior displayed by a man who should have been upset by the disappearance of the mother of his children. But what was of even more particular interest was that on the profile Daniel called himself a widower long before his wife's body had even been found. One final key piece of evidence assisted the detectives with strengthening the case. New cell phone technology available in 2009 enabled geolocating for cell phone data. The investigators already had the phone records showing 13 calls between Daniel, David, and Roseanne in a four-hour period around the time of Heather's disappearance. Now, with the new technology, it was possible for them to determine where those calls originated from. For instance, brother-in-law David's cell phone pinged at a cell tower right by where Heather's car was found, and he had called both Daniel and Roseanne from that location. When prosecutor Robert Weiner was assigned to the case, he was concerned because the team still lacked answers to some important questions. They didn't know where Heather died, how she died, or exactly who killed her. Regardless of the many unanswered questions, Prosecutor Weiner took the evidence the team had meticulously assembled to a grand jury and secured an indictment. On December 14, 2011, more than eight years after Heather's murder, Daniel, David, and Roseanne DeWild were finally arrested. They were each charged with murder in the first degree and conspiracy to commit murder in the first degree. Not only did the grand jury think the trio had killed Heather, but also it charged them with working together to cover it up. After learning about the indictment, District Attorney Story released a statement. He said, Solving this homicide has been my main priority since I took office in 2005. The investigation has been a long time coming, but investigators in my office, the Jefferson Sheriff's County Office, the Arvada Police Department, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, and the Edgewater Police Department have never forgotten Heather DeWild. Homicide cases become much more difficult to solve with the passage of time. The tenacity of our investigators allowed us to take this to a grand jury. We are pleased that they have returned this indictment. The indictment pointed to many key aspects of evidence against the DeWilds and generally outlined the prosecution's version of events. It was suggested that after a fight broke out between Heather and Daniel, Daniel, David, and Roseanne somehow subdued Heather, killed her, and later disposed of both Heather's body and her vehicle. This resulted in 
instituting a code of silence between them to perpetrate the conspiracy to cover up the murder. In the document, the authorities made it clear they believed it would have taken all three DeWilds to murder Heather and cover it up. One person to get rid of Heather's car, another person to follow the driver back and pick them up, and a third person to watch the DeWild children. The indictment drew on cell phone records and new cell phone locating technology to confirm the movements and involvement of all three main suspects. The indictment also argued that Heather's body was staged. It was thought that the rope and duct tape mask were used to suggest that the crime might have been perpetrated by a killer during a sex act and not a family member. According to the grand jury, the introduction of this spurious evidence was done in an attempt to redirect the investigation away from the DeWilds. Heather's family was relieved that her case was finally going to trial. So much time had passed that they were worried that Heather might never get justice. Even though they had always been suspicious Daniel had been the mastermind behind Heather's murder, it was tough for Heather's family to know that people they had all known and loved could be responsible for causing so much pain. Heather's younger sister Rebecca told the media, It was very difficult to know that that's who was indicted. It's very difficult to know it's someone who was so close. To know they did something so horrible to our family. If it's the case, that's pretty surprising. It's pretty hard to deal with. I feel a little bit betrayed. I hope for their sake they realize what they've done and feel some sort of remorse or sorrow for it. Rebecca also drew attention to how Jacob and Hannah, who were 12 and 14 when the grand jury returned the indictment, had suffered tremendously after the loss of their mom. Since their mother's murder, the DeWild children had been splitting their time with their grandparents and Daniel. Now that Daniel was going to be arrested for the murder of their mom, they were going to lose their dad, too. Going into the trial, the prosecution realized that they had a significant amount of circumstantial evidence, but that it might be a tough go proving to a jury that the DeWild brothers and Roseanne had murdered Heather and then conspired to cover up the crime. Nevertheless, they were ready for a battle. On the other hand, Daniel's attorneys, Tom Ward and Fran Simonette, were quite confident they would win the case. Ward said there was not a shred of physical evidence that linked his client to Heather's murder. The prosecutors had hoped that Roseanne might break and turn against her husband and brother-in-law now that she had experienced life behind bars. Instead, what happened next stunned the prosecution and the lawyers of all three of the suspects. It was David, Roseanne's husband and Daniel's twin, who buckled and admitted that he had disposed of Heather's body after Daniel had murdered her. David explained that Daniel had started mapping out Heather's murder months before her death. In April of 2003, after Daniel was ordered to pay child support, he decided it was time to murder Heather. The brothers 
started carefully watching CSI-type crime shows so they could learn how to commit the perfect murder and not leave any evidence behind. From the shows, they learned techniques like wearing two sets of gloves to not leave any trace evidence. David told authorities that he often tried to talk Daniel out of killing Heather, but Daniel would say, Look, I'm doing this with or without you. David felt that he had no choice but to help his brother, and he was sure Daniel would get caught if he did not have David by his side. On August 4th, 2012, a visually shaken David took the investigators to the DeWild garage to reenact on video exactly how Heather was killed. David said that when Heather arrived at the DeWild residence around noon on July 24, 2003, he made one last-ditch effort to stop his brother from carrying out the plan, but Daniel refused to be deterred. Daniel persuaded Heather to go into the garage with him by promising to return to her a sex tape that the couple had made. Heather left Jacob and Hannah playing in the house with Roseanne nearby if they needed anything and headed to the garage. By this time, David was already waiting in the garage. Heather walked through the door first with Daniel close behind. Daniel swiftly closed the door behind them grabbed Heather by the shoulders, and threw her down hard onto the floor. According to David, a look of realization crossed Heather's face. David said, she knew something was going to happen, what was about to happen, and kind of looked at me to say, you know, help me here. But I didn't do anything. I didn't do a thing to help her. Daniel then picked up a mallet that he had placed on the counter in advance to use in the attack. As Heather tried to stand up, Daniel hit her hard with the mallet, and she dropped to the floor. After he tossed away the hammer, Daniel picked up a noose he had tied, placed it around Heather's neck, and hanged her from the rafters using a pulley system he had set up earlier that day. After Heather was dead, Daniel used tape and rope to make it look like Heather's death was a result of a bondage sex act gone bad. David left and drove Heather's vehicle to the apartment complex where it was later found. By the time he returned home after abandoning the car, Daniel had placed Heather's body in a garbage bag and had already loaded her body into the back of the Suburban. Apparently, Daniel had planned a much more remote spot to dump Heather's body, but David told the police that the Suburban had transmission issues that forced Daniel to instead hide his wife's body in a shallow grave on the Canyon Road where Curtis Johnson later discovered her. The prosecution thought that David's story was plausible, it did match the majority of the circumstantial evidence that they had been able to gather over the years. But they could not help but wonder if they really could trust David after he had lied to them for many years. Before they were comfortable offering David a deal, the authorities insisted that he take a lie detector test. It was later revealed that he passed on all of the questions that were related to Heather's murder 
except for one topic, Roseanne's involvement. When asked, David swore that Roseanne had no idea that he and Daniel had been responsible for Heather's murder and the disposal of her body. Even after the questionable polygraph results, the charges against Roseanne were dropped after she had spent eight months in prison. A spokesperson for the Jefferson County District Attorney defended the move, stating, As the investigation proceeded, we came to believe that we could not prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt. Later, the district attorney made it clear he was very confident that after the fact, Roseanne had some knowledge and that, very likely, she had some participation in one degree or another. We just couldn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt. To this day, Roseanne denies having anything to do with Heather's murder or with covering it up afterwards. She still insists, I had nothing to do with it. I didn't know anything. She acknowledges that most people think she was involved in the crime in some way. But according to Roseanne, she was stunned and heartbroken when David confessed. She said, I just fell to pieces. It's hard to explain my feeling. Denial. David's sentencing hearing was held on January 24, 2012. Judge Christopher J. Munch handed down a 12-year term, the maximum that David could receive under the terms of his plea agreement. The deal specified that in return for his testimony against his twin brother Daniel, David would plead guilty to conspiracy to commit second-degree murder. This would guarantee that David did not have to face a first-degree murder charge. When he sentenced David, Judge Munch emphasized the tragedy that the Dwild children had gone through. He told David, You have dealt these children a fate worse than orphanhood. Not only did they lose a mother, but also a father and uncle that they can now view with only deep shame. Many of Heather's family members had the opportunity to speak at the hearing. Jean Stahl, Heather's grandmother, told the court that she thought 12 years was way too short of a sentence for David to serve, considering his crimes. She tearfully explained, I'm praying to God for the grace to forgive him, but it hasn't happened yet. Heather's sister, Jennifer Springer, also did not think that David had earned forgiveness. In fact, she called David's confession self-serving and nine years too late. The last person to testify at David's hearing was David himself. David addressed the court and Heather's loved ones. His final words before being taken away to prison for over a decade were, All I can say is I'm sorry. That's all I've got. Although David has yet to be paroled, one day soon he will be a free man. David's twin brother Daniel went to trial for the murder of his wife in November of 2012. David testified against his brother for almost two straight days and never once 
did the twins even look at each other? When David was asked by the prosecution about his relationship with his brother, he said he and his brother had always been very close, but now they seemed to be going our separate ways. Daniel's defense attorneys argued that David's testimony against his brother was all lies. David had been lying to the authorities for nine years. Why believe what he's saying now? Daniel's lawyers contended that their client had no idea where Heather went after she left his house on the afternoon of July 24, 2003. All Daniel knew was that she had gone shopping somewhere and he fully expected her to return in a couple hours. Unlike David, Daniel's story had never changed. It was apparent to Daniel's lawyers that it was in fact David who had murdered Heather, not Daniel. They told the jury that David had always been obsessed with Heather, and he had hoped that after Heather and Daniel divorced, he would have a chance to build a relationship with his brother's ex-wife. When Heather had turned down his advances, Daniel's defense team told the jury David had killed her. The prosecution scoffed at the suggestion that David was the mastermind who had murdered Heather. Not only was Daniel the one with the power in the brother's relationship, but also it was Daniel with the motive. He was dead set against paying child support and was going to lose his house. Daniel, by far, had the most to gain from Heather's death. The prosecution informed the jury there was no evidence proving that David was obsessed with Heather, like the defense had claimed. So what motive did he have to kill his sister-in-law? And it made no sense why he would confess and implicate himself when he could have easily fashioned a story that made Heather's death look like an accident. The defense combated this argument by pointing to David's plea deal, by blaming the murder on Daniel and testifying against his twin, David had managed to only get a 12-year term instead of a life sentence. Plus, by sharing his supposed fabricated version of the events, the defense argued that David was able to help exonerate his wife Roseanne and get the charges against her dropped. During closing arguments, the prosecution recognized that David's confession had helped bolster their largely circumstantial case against his brother. Prosecutor Wiener told the jurors, David gave you something better than DNA. David gave you the intimate details of a very sick and depraved murder. He reminded the jury that Daniel was a cool, calculated killer. After a two-week trial, the case went to the jury on Friday, November 16, 2012. To kick off the deliberations, the jury took a straw poll to determine where they all stood before beginning serious deliberations. Six jurors voted guilty, but the other six were unsure of Daniel's guilt in the actual murder itself. During day two of deliberations, the jury voted again and now ten of them believed Daniel was guilty of murdering his wife. But two of the jurors 
were steadfast against finding Daniel guilty. In their opinion, there was not enough evidence to convict Daniel of first-degree murder. They questioned whether David was telling the truth, and they bought into the defense's argument that David may have concocted a version of events that placed the blame on his brother Daniel to receive a shorter sentence and get his wife Roseanne out of prison. After only a day and a half, the jury delivered their verdict. Daniel was found guilty of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, an accessory after the fact to first-degree murder. But the jury was unable to come to a unanimous verdict on the first-degree murder charge. For the two felony accounts he was found guilty of, Daniel would receive a sentence anywhere between 16 to 15 years in prison. Judge Munch declared a mistrial on the murder count and set a new trial date for January 8, 2013, to retry Daniel. The judge also decided Daniel would be sentenced for the two counts he had been found guilty of after his second trial. After the verdict, Heather's family thanked the investigators for their years of hard work. Although it was not fully the verdict they were hoping for, Heather's dad stressed that he didn't get away with it, not completely. Daniel's much-anticipated retrial never happened. On December 20th, 2012, Daniel stood before the court and confessed to the second-degree murder of his estranged wife, Heather. Instead of having to face another trial and the possibility of life behind bars, Daniel's lawyers worked out a deal that saw him plead guilty to second-degree murder, a sentence that came with prison time between 72 and 75 years. On February 28, 2013, Daniel was back before Judge Munch for sentencing. He was sentenced to 74 years in prison, only one year less than the term the prosecution had requested. One of the stipulations of his plea bargain is that Daniel can never appeal his sentence. Daniel could be up for parole, but only after his full sentence is served. As a result, there is little doubt Daniel will die in prison. During the sentencing hearing, Heather's father Dave surmised Daniel's heinous and pointless actions. He said, Daniel destroyed the life of his children. He destroyed the life of his own family members, all for unnecessary greed and ego that accomplished nothing. Daniel also had the opportunity to speak when he was being sentenced. He admitted to killing Heather. Although he managed to avoid saying her name, Daniel simply stated, I pled guilty to knowingly causing the death of another person. He appeared emotionless when he was led away in handcuffs, looking somewhat stunned at the thought of spending the rest of his life in prison. Daniel also had to deal with the fact that he no longer had his twin brother David to turn for help. The courts made sure to house the brothers who had once completed each other's sentences in different prisons. After almost a decade of court visits, Heather's dad Dave 
and her sister Jennifer told reporters how they felt now that the ordeal had finally come to an end. And I always hoped someday that everything they hid in secret would be exposed, and now it is, and they're, they're sentenced for it. In my mind, it's good. I think it's almost a miracle that we even got to here because it just seemed like there was it was never going to happen. By the time it did happen, by the time Daniel was held accountable for killing Heather, Jacob and Hannah DeWild were teenagers who were living with their grandparents and trying their best to move forward with their lives. They were not in the courtroom to watch their dad get sentenced for murdering their mother. No sentence could ever bring their mother back or give them the chance to enjoy all the years they could have had with both of their parents if their dad had not made the terrible decision that he did on that fateful July day. For Jennifer, now that Daniel and David were behind bars for what they had done to her sister, the healing could finally begin. It was time for the family to move on as much as possible. Given how much time Heather's loved ones had spent in courtrooms the decades since Heather had been killed, her children never had the opportunity to go on a proper holiday. Jennifer vowed that was going to change. The focus was going to be on taking them to see the world, perhaps starting with the trip to Disneyland. It was time for Jacob and Hannah to experience less pain and more joy. Heather was buried in Mount Olivet Cemetery in Wheat Ridge, Colorado. The relationship that Heather forged with her children in the short years she had with them more than fulfilled the epitaph carved on her gravestone. All she wanted was to love and be loved in return. Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. I'd like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Lauren R., Holly, Rachel, MJH, Charlotte G., Devin B., Cindy T., Anne M., Brittany H., Sarah L., Nina M., Karen W., Mary W., and Laura D. And now I'd like to introduce two podcasts, Voices for Justice. My name is Sarah Turney. You might know my sister, Alyssa Turney's story. She went missing in 2001 and was most likely murdered by our father. But what you haven't heard is my point of view. I'm going to tell Alyssa's story from start to finish in my own words for the first time on my new podcast, Voices for Justice. And after I tell Alyssa's story, I'm not stopping there. In season two, I'm going to feature and help other people like me 
people actively fighting for justice. Each story will include its own call to action. Don't just listen to our stories, be a part of them. You too can be another voice for justice. And Mugshot. You've heard the stories of bloody murder and horrendous homicide. But what about the rest of the crimes people fall victim to every day? What about the burglar who broke into famous people's homes? What happened to the forensic chemist that falsified evidence? Who are the fraudsters, arsonists, stalkers, hackers, and more? I'm Lindsay, the host of Mugshot. Mugshot is a true crime podcast bringing you stories of the non-murderous crimes you didn't know you needed to hear. Be sure to find Mugshot on your favorite podcatcher and on all social media outlets at the handle at MugshotPod. But until then, stay out of trouble or you may end up pictured in your very own Mugshot. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash g